This is Listen to the Editors, a series of interviews with journal editors to unveil the trends in research for operations and supply chain management. I'm your host, Yuri Gavronsky. Today, we have a special episode for Listen to the Editors. We are interviewing Sean Handley. Sean M. Handley is an associate professor in the Management Science Department of the Darla Moore School of Business, University of South Carolina, and he is the incoming chair for the OSCM division for AOM 2020, and we will be talking today in this episode about the submission process and what is expected from authors for the upcoming annual meeting. Good morning, Sean. Good morning. What is the manuscript track? In other words, what happens after the authors press the submit button on the Academy of Management website? Sure. Well, well first off, January 14th is our deadline this year. So at 5 p.m., Eastern Time US, the submission system will close, and that is non-negotiable. So I know that for some conferences, it's sort of a soft deadline and those get extended. But with the Academy of Management, because of the sheer number of submissions each year, that is a firm deadline. So I certainly encourage would-be contributors to, to adhere to, the, to that deadline. And so once submissions are accepted into the system and closed out on January 14th, and by the way, I certainly welcome any submissions before that, even though I think 90% of the submissions tend to come in in the last week, we would certainly welcome those in advance so that we can get a jump on on reviewing those. Uh, but once the submission system closes, there's a few day period where the system will check the submissions for compliance with the AOM submission guidelines, and it'll flag any of the submissions that it sees as having any discrepancies with those guidelines. And then it'll give me an opportunity as the program chair to go in and, and review those that were flagged and to see um, whether it was something trivial or if it's something uh, more significant that would uh, impede moving forward with a, a legitimate review of that. So things like, did the authors not have any identifying information in their submission? Or uh, did they fail to put the submission number you know, on the document? You know, sometimes they forget to, to include an abstract. You know, things like that, that the Academy's system uh, will kick those out. So, so there's that, that pre-screening that, that takes place up front. But, but mostly that's just to see it, you know, is there compliance with the, with the major items in the, in the AOM uh, submission guideline? Let me, let me interrupt you right there and, and ask you, what happens if the author forgets one of those things? It's rejected right away? It, the, the person has a second chance to revise and resubmit? What happens? Sure. Great question. Um, well, again, that's, that's another incentive to try to get those in early, right? Because if you submit those right at the deadline... I can't reopen the submission system, right? And so then it's in a position that if, if, if the feeling is that it's going to hamper the ability to do a double-blind review process or it's uh, inconsistent in some major ways with the AOM guidelines, then it would probably be rejected. Maybe you would call that like a desk rejection. And so I know that the Academy is very, very stringent on authors complying with their guidelines. So I would certainly encourage uh, people to do that. And, and folks who have contributed in the past, I think, are, are fully aware of that. But for first-time contributors, that would be one piece of advice I would certainly give uh, to make sure you, you take some time to review those guidelines. 
because they're, they're not significant, just like in a journal, uh, but just a, a lot of little things to, to keep track of. Now, if, if it's submitted, you know, a week, two weeks in advance, and I'm able to catch that, then that maybe provide me an opportunity to go back to the authors for correction. But like I said, 90% of the submissions come in last minute. And so typically that, that would have to be, be rejected at that time just because it doesn't comply with the, with the guidelines. Right. But, but most of the submissions don't, don't fall into that category. Most of the submissions are, are, are done pretty well. Is there a, a hard limit on the number of submissions that a person can have? And, and how does that interact with the PDWs? I mean, for example, if I am submitting, say, a PDW proposal or I am invited to, or someone in my, is a panelist in my, in my PDW, is that person that counts towards the number of papers that the person can submit to the scholarly program? Yeah, that's a good question that I don't really have a clear answer for offhand. Uh, I believe that the Academy has something called the rule of three, where you're limited to three contributions, but I don't really know how that, uh, that includes the PDW submissions, to be honest. Does the system flag that? when the person is submitting? That's my understanding. Sean, I interrupt you during the process. So you were saying that the 24 hours or 48 hours, the submission is flagged for non-conformance and then gets back to you. And then there are the probably the majority of the other submissions that don't have any, any flags on that. So what happens next? Right. So, so the Academy has something they call the TIM, the TIM reviewer matching system, which is an algorithm-based system that takes the keywords that are provided by the authors and the keywords that are indicated by the reviewers that have signed up to contribute service to the academy. And it tries to optimize the match on those keywords between the reviewers and the, the contributors. And so that really underscores the importance, both from a reviewer perspective, as well as from the author perspective. You know, the higher quality those keywords are, the better match it's going to be. The reviewers are going to be more qualified and the review and the authors are therefore going to get, I get stronger feedback from, from those. That's, that's something very important. So in, in mid January, uh, they run this system uh, across the academy that matches reviewers with uh, the papers that are being uh, being re- going to be reviewed, right? And and then again, it's my understanding that you know ninety five or higher percent of the time that those matches are are what are accepted. But I do have the ability to override it if I see that I don't like one of the matches, or I think that maybe there's a reviewer that signed up that I think could do uh, a nice job providing feedback to the authors, right? But but for the most part, that's an automated matching system. And that takes place over a two or three day period. And then once that's done, the review assignments are sent out uh, roughly in the third week of January, right? At which time the reviewers are asked to provide their feedback uh, within, I believe it's four weeks. So from mid-January, third week of January, let's say, through about the third week of of February, the reviewers are are doing their work and the system is sending automated reminders, much like you'd have uh, for a, a journal paper as well. Okay. And then uh, the, the reviews are expected to be returned by the third week of February. And then I have, uh, and, and as part of that review process, the reviewers fill out a survey rating the 
the paper on a number of different dimensions. Uh, and then they also had some opportunity to provide textual feedback uh, to the authors as well. And then I take those ratings and that feedback. And then I have a, a few week period through about mid-March to, to make the accept and rejection decisions. Okay. So, yeah, so I don't know if you have any clarifying questions at this point. Yeah, I do. I have two, in fact. Uh, one is, what's the criteria? You have so many slots, for example, for for sessions, and then you know how many papers you can accept, and then you, you rank them. What's the, what's the idea? What, how do you make those decisions? I'm, I'm, I'm sure space is, is a constraint, right? You cannot accept all good papers. Or and so we have, again, about 150 papers to process in a, roughly, depending on the year, in a very short period of time. Uh, and as you had mentioned, the, uh, the academy at large allocates each division a certain number of programming hours, right? And so what, what I will have to do is take the allotted number of programming hours combined with the number of submissions. And as you said, I will have to uh, know up front then approximately the, the number of contributions that I'll be able to accept. Historically, the acceptance rate has been in the 50 to 60% range. Uh, but it, it bounces around the, in that ballpark uh, from year to year, again, depending on allocated hours, as well as the number of submissions in, in that particular year. As with anything you have, if you were to rank those, for instance, you're going to have some papers that are rated very highly, uh, some where the ratings are, are clearly not as favorable. Right? And so for those, the decisions are a little bit more straightforward. Uh, but then you have a, a probably another bulk of, of the papers in the middle, uh, which I'll have to scan through not only the ratings, uh, but also look at the, the, uh, the text feedback that was provided, you know, looking at how well the match was between the reviewers and the, and the, uh, and the, and the submission. Uh, and so, again, those in the middle require probably most of the work trying to figure out, you know, if we're trying to hit a 55% uh, acceptance rate, you know, you know, where do you draw the line on those? And my second question, uh, as a follow-up for your previous response, is about the reviewers. For example, I got, I, I am a member of the Academy of Management for the past 10 years. I, I got the email inviting me to be to 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 register in the reviewer uh, system is in my to-do list to do this week but what happens with newer reviewers for example i have phd students can they volunteer to review even if they are not willing to join the academy this year or they are not willing to submit to the academy can they contribute to the academy of management by reviewing this year Absolutely. In fact, I was just looking at this information uh, the other day, and I actually have it in front of me. And um, I think last year there were approximately 160, 170 reviewers, of which almost 40 of them were not AOM members, but people who still wanted to provide provide service to the academy. Now, maybe those are folks that have been members in the past, so they have a relationship with the academy, but but, but they let their membership lapse. Uh, or perhaps there are people that have never been. Uh, I know that, you know, much like you, I'm encouraging people this year in my department who have never been to the academy to to try to attend this year and, and to experience what the rest of us find so rewarding about the about the conference. But but directly to your question, you do not have to be a, a an academy member. Uh, and in, when you sign up for the review process, uh, I believe I saw that there's a question where it asks you if you're a, a student or not. 
So it'll provide me with that insight. And I, and I believe the way they do the matching, uh, you know, it'll try not to assign like three students to the same paper and, and, and things like that. It, it'll, it'll try its best to, to, to you know, have experience for viewers as well. So what's your mission as the program chair? What do you do? Okay. Yeah, so I guess from a, a scholarly perspective, I guess there's a few different types of, of papers that I, I'm particularly interested in. Um, one of those, of course, every year we, we encourage uh, submissions that are in line with the conference theme, which this year is broadening our site. And I can talk more about that uh, you know, in, in a moment if you would like. And so, so anything that, that ties in with the conference theme is certainly welcome. Uh, I also welcome uh, contributions uh, this year that look at traditional operations and supply chain topics uh, in the context of some major trends that we see reshaping industry. So things that, such as the increasing pressures that organizations face for sustainability and corporate social responsibility. Of course, you, you can't uh, turn on the news or, or look at a, you know, a publication without hearing something about Industry 4.0 and emerging technologies, whether that be blockchain or automation or big data analytics. You know, so so you know, I, I'm interested in, in contributions to look at you know how do traditional operations and supply chain concepts and, and frameworks and practices, you know, how well do those work in this shifting environment? Another hot area uh, that I know talking to uh, folks in industry uh, from a supply chain perspective is the great deal of uncertainty that currently exists in terms of trade and tariff policies uh, around the world. I know I work, uh, have been working for a few years with a very large aerospace company, and they've brought up to me numerous times uh, the havoc that all this uncertainty is raising for them in terms of trying to optimize their global supply chain footprint. Uh, so things like Brexit, you know, the, the, the great deal of uncertainty on the trade relations between the U.S. and China, uh, and even in North America as well. And so I know a lot of companies are, are grappling with that as well. Uh, that's that's something I find always uh, we struggle. For example, a couple of years ago, before we we hosted, I can't remember if it was the Olympics or the World Cup, one of those big global events in, in Brazil, um, we had a candidate to our PhD program that wanted to study that. And I was very intrigued by the proposal, but I was concerned with the person trying to study something very ephemeral. You know, for example, how Brexit would be a theme that you can work on and research for a period of time before it gets old. And then you, how can you publish that? I, I would like to hear from you. What? Yeah, I think. Yeah, especially if you're a student, right? You probably want to be cautious about um, pursuing something that is very transitory, right? Uh, but, you know, on the other hand, if you think about something like, you know, emerging technologies, the pressure for sustainability, I don't think that those are trends that are going to go away, right? And so something like that that you view as more durable would probably be a safer bet uh, from, a, again, from a young scholar perspective. Uh, whereas people who are a little bit more established can maybe you know, spend more time you know, trying to tackle things that you know, maybe they're not as relevant 10 years from now. But right now, they're very important issues and front burner issues for, for organizations. Um, and in fact, the, uh, the call for papers that the Academy of Management 
uh, program chair issued, you know, talks about, you know, as part of this broadening your site, uh, is, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that tension between the time and the rigor that's expected for academic publications? Uh, how do you balance that with the fact, like you're pointing out, there are issues that are, are very important to managers right now, right? Uh, that that may or may not be relevant in the future. Uh, and so, but but certainly any guidance that academics could offer would could potentially be very valuable. And so, you know, balancing that, you know, is, is something that I think in academics we struggle with a bit. Yeah, I I always thought in this particular case, uh, the student, for example, if he had framed his project in terms of um, you know, studying logistics or public safety or something like that right. for large events, and using this particular event as a as a ground for as a as a field for I don't know observation or anything like that or data collection would be much better than centering the research problem around the event, right? Yeah, I think that's right. You know, how do you take that as an exemplary uh, or a, a very strong example of something broader? Yeah, I think that's right. So let's expand this um, discussion on the theme this year. I have some people eventually that looked at those themes either in the Academy of Management or other conferences and say, look, I cannot submit to this conference because I am not researching this topic. I mean, it's very hard not framing your research in terms of the theme this year, but in some years, the, the theme is very specific, right? What the potential authors should do, they should refrain from submitting, what is mm -hmm. a different expectation from the authors because of the theme, what happens? Right, and so, you know, one of the challenges with a, cat, a, a conference and a society as large as AOM is that the, you know, over the years, certain themes may apply to certain division and interest groups better than others, right? And so, but we don't establish themes for every single division. We just have one broad uh, academy uh, uh, theme. So fortunately, this year, the theme, at least the way I interpret it, is more of how we approach our research as opposed to a particular topic. Uh, so again, the, the idea is, or the theme is broadening uh, our site. Uh, and really what, what, what that call is, is really getting at is that there are these, I think they use the term dichotomies or what I would call maybe uh, obstacles or barriers in our profession, many of which are self-imposed. And so and we, we touched about one of those earlier is, you know, how do you, how do you combine academic rigor with managerial relevance or theoretical contribution with managerial contributions, qualitative versus quantitative research, you know, things of that nature. And so I think the idea is that sometimes we, we impose on ourselves these, these rules or these barriers that, that perhaps constrain how we go about addressing research questions. And so really, I think the theme this year is trying to encourage us to, you know, let's, let's try to break down some of those barriers all right, and, and really tackle research questions, you know, in the optimal way uh, that, that doesn't, again, where we, we can, again, don't try to get, fall into these traps of saying, well, uh, you know, if it's methodologically rigorous, maybe it's not quite as applicable to practice or, or, or something like that. Or, you know, this is, you know, a lot of the topics that, that we grapple with are cross-disciplinary by their nature. And yet we, we kind of put on our disciplinary 
uh, you know, fall into these silos where we, we kind of fail to, to consider more broadly uh, multiple dimensions of the problems we're trying to tackle. Uh, so again, I think in my view, this year's theme is more of uh, an approach and a kind of a mindset to our research. Uh, and so I think that provides a lot of flexibility from a, a contributor perspective. This is part of the response of my question, but I have another part, which is, for example, someone is researching, say, supply chain resilience, and it's not related at all with the team. Should the person spin the paper to match the team somehow or go with the paper as it is? What what would be your suggestion? Well, sure. I, I, I think, um, I guess my... My practical suggestion would be uh, that in the paper itself, I wouldn't necessarily change it because ultimately, in my view, a lot of authors use the academy as a developmental mechanism to help continue to develop their work that, that eventually they aspire to have published in a peer-reviewed journal, right? And those journals may or may not have the same themes as, as what's going on in the academy. That being said, you know, I think it's uh, worthwhile when you present that work uh, to think about how that ties in with the conference theme, right? And maybe tailor your the way that you present that in Vancouver uh, to, to tie in with that. But I, I, I would not encourage authors to completely change the framing of their paper uh, just for the theme of the academy. Hopefully that's what you're looking for. Yeah, that, that's that's my question. Yes. I, I have my opinion, of course. I'm sure. <laughs> but I would like to hear yours. Um, I normally say to my students, for example, normally my students come with this question, right? So I don't have, this is not my my, my research theme. So what do I do? That's, that's fine. I mean, you, your paper won't be discounted because you have uh, a paper that is not does not fit the theme, it will be evaluated based on the methodological and, and contribution merits, despite not fitting the theme. Yeah, we can't become prisoner to the theme. Otherwise, I think we head down the road of having such a narrow offering of programming that the academy would lose its value. Uh, However, I would say that, you know, going back to our discussion about how there are papers that feedback from the reviewers is puts them in the middle of a ranking. You know, if I look at a paper and say, well, here's a paper or a group of papers that really nicely touch on the conference thing, then that perhaps gives them a leg up, you know, amongst other things. Uh, but again, I, I, don't, I don't think I would completely revamp a paper or I would not be heavily discouraged from submitting a paper if, if it didn't tightly tie in with the thing. Would you have any other editorial experiences outside the academy? Yes, yeah, so I am an associate editor for JOM, Journal of Operations Management, as well as the Decision Sciences Journal. And I'm on the editorial review board for the Journal of Supply Chain Management and Production and Operations Management. And I do some ad hoc reviewing for other journals, but that's sort of the, the core set of my reviewer and editorial duties. How does that editorial experience inform your work as the program chair? Well, I think it certainly has me uh, uh, focused on getting reviewers. I think we all know anybody who has tried to solicit reviews for journals realize how difficult that can be. So by all means, anyone listening, I would, uh, you know, 
implore you to please sign up to be a reviewer. That'll certainly make my job a, a lot easier <laughs> in, a, in, a, yeah, in a selfish way. You know, and, you know, again, it's a sort of a different animal thing. We're going to be processing 150, 175 contributions in about a month. Uh, so it's a bit of a different animal, I think, than you, you have in a typical review process. But I say, that, again, kind of just knowing, uh, again, the, on the review side, how difficult it is, that's one thing that I know uh, I've been kind of paying attention to. What would be the grounds for desk rejection? I mean, we discussed the formatting, for example, not having the abstract or having the number of the submission in the, he the heading of the PDF file. Want something else that you would uh, recommend authors to check before they submit? I mean, that's the biggest thing, really. It's like so we, we've got like a two-day period, to, you know, and again, if you're talking 150, 170 papers, right, uh, really I'm looking at those that get flagged by the system uh, as being in compliant with the guidelines. That, that'd be my number one suggestion, to make sure that you fully understand the submission guidelines that are clearly posted on the AOM website. Again, uh, in the past, the issues that I have been told are create issues are missing title page, missing or too long of an abstract, uh, not including page numbers, and not including the submission number uh, on the on the submission. Those are those are a few things that I've been told to be on the lookout for. So, how how does that training happen? When when are you? When, are, when is the development of the program shares of the divisions? Do you have a, a cohort of program shares that are uh, gathered around the time or it's from the previous program chair to the next? What, how does that happen? Yeah, so there's some learning and knowledge transfer that takes place within the division, right? We're, we have a fairly small group, a handful of us that, that work on on the conference. And so you start off in your first assignment as a PDW chair, but, but during that year, you work in close coordination with the program chair. So you, so you get a feel for the, the pace of things and kind of some of the critical issues that you're gonna have to, to deal with. Uh, in addition to that, again, AOM provides us with a very extensive guidebook on you know, the do's and the don'ts, frequently asked questions, calendars of activities and, and, and things of that that we can follow. Uh, also, every year at the conference, they'll have a, a meeting for incoming program chairs where people will get together and share best practices, lessons learned, and, and things of that, that nature. What would be, Sean, your suggestions for first-time attendees in the AOM annual meeting? This year, that's an emphasis of mine, uh, to try to draw in new members. You know, we, I think last year we were very successful. I had a number of new members uh, attend the conference in Boston. And that's a, a trend that we want to, to continue. And so anyone who is a, a longtime member of the academy and has derived uh, significant value from attending these conferences, I would encourage you to, to try to solicit new members and to, to drag them along to the conference and uh, help indoctrinate them into the academy. Uh, but, but more directly to your question, uh, a few things that I would do uh, if I was a first-time um, member. Uh, and one of them is to take advantage of the networking opportunities. I think the one thing that a lot of people like about the academy, uh, especially the OSCM division, is almost every night we have some type of social going on. Uh, and, and the great thing is, you know, there's not a thousand, two thousand people at these socials. It's usually 100, 150 people. So it's a rather intimate setting 
right? Over several nights, uh, you know, to enjoy some some appetizers and some drinks and some good uh, companionship. And I think that this conference provides very nice opportunities for networking. So I'd certainly encourage new members to take advantage of that. Um, this year, for the first time, we're in the early stages of planning a new member event. Uh, it'll probably be in the form of like a cafe uh, where new members can come and learn about the academy, learn about the division, maybe talk to some longtime members about what they have done and what they have gotten out of, of their membership. So that's something we're going to try to do this year. And we're in the very early stages of planning that event. Uh, I would also encourage um, new members to explore uh, possible interest with other division and interest groups. Uh, if I remember correctly, when you sign up for the academy, you're allowed to, free of charge, select a second division and interest group. Uh, for me, that's one of the big draws to the academy uh, is that uh, it you know, has people from strategy, you know, technology, information management, you know, political science, OBHR, international business, a whole wide range of, of management disciplines. Uh, and so I think it's a very uh, cross-disciplinary conference. And I, so I would encourage members to take advantage of that unique aspect of the academy and to kind of branch out uh, to try to form connections and do networking uh, in, in other divisions as well. And then finally, this year, uh, if no one, if any of the new members have never been to Vancouver, Vancouver is terrific in in August. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful environment, so you know maybe you know plan a little extra time to be able to explore the the surrounding area. Okay, then I have covered pretty much what I expected to to cover in this uh, interview. Would you have anything that you'd like to add? No, I don't think so. Again, just to kind of reiterate, maybe some of the high points again for the contributors. And please make sure that you've reviewed the, the Academy Management Submission Guidelines uh, to make sure that, that your contributions are in, in compliance with those guidelines. I think that'll save everybody uh, a lot of uh, grief and, and, and headache down the road. You know, please you know, sign up to be reviewers. And the, the more viewers we have, the, the better matching that we can do between the submissions and the reviews and the feedback that the authors get. All right, so uh, I would do that. And uh, again, for, for those who have been attending the conference for a number of years, or maybe even last year was your first year and you really enjoyed it, uh, I'd encourage you to try to identify just one or two people that, that you're familiar with who have not, never attended the academy and try to bring them along and to uh, you know, help us try to grow the ranks of, of the OSCM division. Okay, great. Thanks again for sharing these insights on this scholarly program and uh, see you there. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Listen to the Editors is an initiative of the Operations and Supply Chain Management Division of the Academy of Management. We post our interviews monthly in our division website. You can discuss any of the topics of this episode using our interactive tool, connect.aom.org. Using the discussion section of our site, you can also post suggestions for questions, journal editors you'd like to hear from, and requests for clarifications. You can also subscribe to our podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or with the Podcast Addict app on Android. See you next month.